And welcome back to another On Coaching Podcast with Magnus and Marcus. I am Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, it's December 2020 is almost over. Thank God. Hey, hey, it's that time, man. It's the best time of the year. You know what time it is? Time to give the people what they want. It is, it is. And if you are a new listener or maybe someone who's been checking out for a while, don't forget to check out our Scholar program, which is chugging along with all sorts of new courses. John and I are both actually working on new courses ourselves at this moment and some actual soon-to-be-introduced live Training Talks exclusive for the scholar members so more details for those who are already members so if you haven't you know get on the boat that's right get on it don't miss this boat it's you know setting sail from the ferry (laughs) i don't even know i'm not a boat guy i'm sorry steve that was awful (laughs) it's all real here and so what are we going to talk about today well i think this is a very important topic which is why coaches matter now more than ever. This is true. This is evergreen. This is not going to just be the case for the COVID times. This will also be the case moving forward as we get into more of a distracted era with hyper, hyper notifications, intensifications of social media and all these things. But Steve and I felt it was prudent now to talk about why coaching and coaches matter because we do. You know, I I think one of the reasons or one thing that came to mind as we went over this topic is that coaches often get the short like short end of the stick. Amen, brother, and the short end of pay. Yes, yes, that is true. <laughs> We've been experiencing that for decades. So, um, but it's it it's so true because I think of it as like, okay, let's go down to the high school and college level. Who has the most face-to-face interaction and impact on the students than coaches, right? In a a context where the student is actually doing something they want to do. It's called extracurricular because it's voluntary. It's out of their own will to show up and do this hard thing called sport. And, And there's a power there in them choosing to do it, right? When you choose to do something... You're more engaged, you're more willing to listen, you're more open to learning versus when you're you're kind of forced to do it, as we all went through in high school with various classes, we tune out, we check out, we go for the bare minimum and get through things. But in, in when you're looking at athletics or whatever you're doing where you're getting coaching, it's largely you're choosing to show up. And when you choose to show up, no, not every day you're fully engaged, but you are more so open, willing to learn. And I think that's why a, a lot of, if you talk to athletes or even, you know, I reminisce with friends and colleagues the lessons that stuck with us that stick with us are those that we learned in sport and those taught by our coaches. And it's not always about who has the best training methodology or training plan. You know, Steve and I, we spend an overwhelmingly amount of time on this podcast talking about the tactics about how to do things and execute it and why from a preparation or training standpoint. But, you know, I think, 
this year of, you know, the pandemic has taught me more than anything that what really fundamentally matters is the connection, uh, the um, degree of influence and identity shaping uh, power that a coach and a team can have on an athlete and a person. Um, and then also too, just the uh, ability to anchor orient someone's self-concept as someone who does this and doesn't do that. Cause that's really always right. What an athlete uh, lifestyle is about athletes do X, Y, Z, they get up and they lift and then they train and then they go do this. They don't do other things like sell, you know, hang out on the corner, you know, uh, selling you know, illicit drugs or something or working, uh, you know, graveyard shifts. I mean, some athletes might, some people might do that stuff as well as ethics, but mostly it's a lifestyle you are propagating and preaching so that you can have success or enjoy success or return on your investment in this activity. When you show up and do the functional thing that is called a sporting contest. I'm so glad you mentioned the lifestyle point because I think that gets lost in this so much is that you really are establishing um, a way to look at the world and function in the world that is hopefully a more positive, uh, productive one than, you know, uh, otherwise people might fall into. It's definitely a worldview, 100%. Yeah, it's just as worldview as like, say, being Amish or uh, just as worldview as, say, being a uh, Shia Muslim, like whatever it may be, like being an athlete gives you a certain worldview and being a runner gives you a certain worldview as well it, it does you know i've often talked with one of my uh, former college teammates marcel who's in investment banking and at nearly every conversation we have about work he brings up well it's difficult but like it's not like running a hundred mile weeks in like houston texas like if i could get through that then I can apply the same sort of like mindset to get through this like difficult period at, at work. And like, that's not just his sentiment. I hear that sentiment of like taking lessons and analogies from their running life um, and putting them through, you know, putting them to work in aspects of their real world work life, family life that, you know, um, that isn't running. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I have the same experience, Steve, like, you know, my wife as well, like she's been a, a competitive runner for, you know, 20 years and she just had, she's wired a certain way. Uh, and it's, we share a very similar worldview. And I remember like, you know, dating women before her who weren't necessarily athletes. Uh, you know, some people, some women were like actresses, some women, you know, had other, um, uh, directions they want to take their life. And it, the worldview just wasn't compatible, right? For what my cognitive, uh, you know, uh, bias for how to live and act. Like, you know, I remember one girlfriend getting really upset and being like, why don't you spend Sunday mornings with me and go out to brunch? And I go, well, because it's Sunday mornings and you do your long runs with your friends. Like, that's what you do. You go to the forest and run, you know, or the park and run for two hours. What What's wrong with you? She's like, what's wrong with you? Like, <laughs> just, <laughs> you know, and I think sometimes we coaches, we now being on the other side of the equation uh, years later, we take for granted the impact that creating that world 
uh, creating that direction and clarity of purpose in athletes uh, has on them for the entire life. And that's really, you know, at the end of the day, we play these games called seasons with, uh, you know, uh, these, uh, you know, moments called races. But now in an era where it's all scattered and there's helter skelter and there's, you know, not the traditional sequence of uh, races and seasons happening, uh, we have to remember, like, at the end of the day, like, what people are signing up for, uh, what they are seeking is they're seeking a certain degree of clarity, direction, structure, and acceptance and coming as they are. And I think that's now more than ever, you have to remind yourself as a coach is you need to accept whoever you're working with or whoever you might want to be working with is as they are, where they're standing, right? And then shape them and give them encouragement and hope and optimism and get with a clear direction about how to better not only their own condition, but also how their improvement and their ability impacts the whole. And that's why cross country is such a great sport and why track and field can be such a great sport because it it puts the onus on an individual to get better, but then also too to help improve the stock or value of the team. Yeah. So I, I'm glad you mentioned that, um, you know, taking the athlete or the person for who they are, um, because I think that's more important now than ever, because I think um, during this k- pandemic, right, I've talked to a lot of high school coaches and a number of college coaches, and we all have different, like, rules, guidelines, expectations. Some are practicing, some are not allowed to. Some high schools are competing, some are not allowed to. Some have had everything canceled. Others, you know, have forged ahead. Um, But it's important to take, like, what I've noticed is take the athlete where they are and where they are in that moment. You know, without my athletes on the college level, for example, like, some have come to me and been like, hey, like, I'm I'm just struggling. Like, I don't know if I can run 75, 80 miles a week. Like, my motivation is not there for whatever reason. Like, what do we do about this? And the answer is, well, it's pretty simple. Like, where you're at and how you're processing what you're going through, like, that's added stress. So, what's not added stress? What's routine? What's normal? Well, 50 to 60 miles a week, like, I enjoy that. Like, I'm not stressing, et cetera. Well, fine. Do that for a while until that, like, intrinsic motivation comes back once maybe, you know, you can see a light at the end of the tunnel. And it's been really important, I think, you know, in my own coaching to just kind of accept where people are are and how they're dealing with things. You know, some of the kids live with grandparents who are, like, 85 years old and, like that brings about a different concern on showing up to things that, you know, someone who lives in a dorm doesn't. So like, and this is pandemic related, but I think it goes out broader on, on like understanding the people you're working with. And then your job as a coach is to figure out how to make sure they're, you know, getting what they need and, and headed in the right directions. Yeah, I think, see, you know, it's uh, when we talk about like the import of a coach and, you know, why we do it for 
the crummy pay and long hours, kind of like a teacher, right? Um, a lot of times it's for payoffs necessarily you don't get to see right now. And so there's a sense of delayed gratification or just not no gratification because you really don't get to see it until someone like pops in, uh, you know, back into your office or, you know, reaches out like years and years and years down the road. But it's the influence and power that your frequency of engagement and tenor and disposition have on shaping someone for better or ill, which is something that I think we coaches sometimes forget uh, and don't realize when we're in kind of the rut- a routine season and worried about results and placings and rankings and PRs and qualification standards and all that type of uh, things. And it's like, it's so much more than just training plans. And like, you know, I look around online and I just see like, you know, there's so many people out there trying to offer a training plan, you know, to runners because it seems like a way to make a quick buck or an easy buck is just to tell, you know, people what to do physically day in and day out, give them a quota of miles and paces to run. But that's not it. Like that misses the mark, right? Essentially what someone's signing up for when they're signing up for coaching is they're signing up for connection, communication, someone, some guidance of someone who's there for you worrying and being aware and concerned for your welfare as an athlete about the direction you're headed. Um, You know, early on in my coaching career when I was younger, I was way more result oriented, right? So I was thinking more, and this is just part of being young and just part of seeking to establish self-identity and, you know, wanting to play the games of, hey, results are what matter most, right? Um, and they're, there's, there's what's going to get me renowned. And at the end of the day, it's it's not that. It's the relationships you forge with, you know, athletes along the way, which are actually the most valuable currency and treasures to have. It's not that one time that one person won a national championship or ran really fast. Like some of the athletes who perform at the highest level under my guidance, I actually today don't even have like – a good relationship with just because, you know, we weren't that compatible as people. Right. Um, and we just didn't forge the relationship as more transactional relationship versus transformative, transformative, uh, type of relationship. And some of the athletes who were, uh, you know, kind of like on the college teams, I coached like, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh runner, but, you know, just workhorses or, you know, this one guy I call a platypus because like he shouldn't have been a runner. He was no good, but he made himself into something. But, you know, you look at a platypus, you're like, what the hell is this thing? It's a mammal, but as a beak, it swims underwater. It doesn't make any <laughs> sense. Right. But he was a really good kid uh, and he's made himself into a fine young, young adult. Uh, and that those intersections of watching that development over time of people just getting better from where they are. That, I think, is the most powerful thing in coaching. Uh, And sometimes we use races as the anchor or as the reason to put in all this hard work and energy and um, training to elevate our condition. When at the end of the day, you know, just getting out and having the habit and routine of training and that structure of like, okay, if I do these things in sequence for a long period of time, overall, my overall physical, mental, emotional state will feel better. Overall, I will feel 
you know, healthier overall, like my various energy and physiological systems will be working in a better functioning order. Like those, when you move from the competitive arena to the pursuit of longevity and health, that is the unseen thing. A lot of times running coaches who especially work with young adults primarily don't get to see down the road that, you know, us coaches who work with older adults or even master athletes do get to, um, witness and be a part of. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because it's interesting looking back now that we've coached long enough, I guess, for as many years, how many, you know, who, what relationships in your coaching world life tend to last and what tends to bring meaning. And I think that brings a little clarity over time versus what you thought at the beginning. I mean, at the beginning, I thought like, accolades performance results were the be all end all essentially um but you over could the, say win at any cost <laughs> I, I wasn't that far but oh. you know that was that that was the uh that was the mentorship i received um i as well steven i as well not quite as thorough as you but i as well yeah so but in many ways, that shaped like that disillusionment early on um, really shaped like how I have grown to see things since. And that you realize it's such a losing battle and not something that you want to like th- that leads to productive outcomes when you quote unquote go the win at all cost model. Now that doesn't mean that you can't win, but you're more winning in the in the eyes or in the model of a John Wooden, right? Whose entire philosophy was like teach people to become essentially better humans and the winning will take care of itself. So, you know, it, it when you're young and you're a coach, I remember reading Wooden when I was, you know, in in college. And yeah, it's impactful, but it also seems kind of like trite because you're just sitting there. You're like, but, you know, I'm a 19 year old kid. I want to win. Like, this is this is nonsense. Like, yeah, all these things matter, but like winning matters. And it's not, I think, until you, you know, have some space and some appreciation and sometimes have gone through things where you realize that, of course, Wooden was spot on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I frame it as there's the win at all cost model versus the um, grow at all cost model, right? So, you know, a lot of the best coaches aren't really renowned because they might not have the most exaggerated escalate or, um, accolades that get noticed in our kind of like constant short-term focused media society, right? You know, one person I'm glad that is getting a little bit of the spotlight in recent years is Rob Connor at UP. Um, and I've talked about Rob before. What separates Rob? And, you know, he, in my opinion, is one of the best coaches coaching in the American collegiate landscape that I know of. And this is no slide against any other big names or any other people out there doing it. There's a lot of good people in the system. But what make, what separates Rob is Rob never stopped being one of the guys. He never stopped uh, having that empathy and compassion for what it was like to be a young 19, 
20, 21 year old guy, college kid, being thrown into the world, you know, kind of on their own for the first time, trying to shape and evolve a self-identity, going through the, you know, quote unquote, drunkard's walk, so to speak, of trying things out, having failure, trying this identity out, trying this activity out, you know, having it not pan out, uh, you know, getting off track, getting back off track, getting sick, getting hurt, all those things, right? He never stopped having that frame of reference. And what that did is it allowed him, and I witnessed this firsthand when I was a young assistant with them, and then when I kind of shadowed him and his team in the 2018 season, um, it allowed him to really give a higher degree of autonomy and ownership and trust to the student athlete he's worked with to have them be able to make some decisions, explore on their own with no rush, with no like, oh, you know, we, we don't have any room for error. Like it's okay for people to screw up. It's okay for people to like, you know, take a step back. It's okay for them to get distracted and off track. The key thing is, is what he provides is a very clear framework of how to get better. And the, the framework is super simple, right? It's just show up and get on the bus. Like just show up and get in the van, show up to practice, right? If you get here and you're able to get on the bus and then they go to the forest or they go to the workout venue and you go run for the 90 minutes, 60 minutes, the workout session. If you just keep doing that every day and you do that for years on end, you're going to get better. But he doesn't say it like that. He makes it so you want to get on the bus. He makes it so you you don't want to miss out on practice because practice is fun. Practice is, you know, there's chatter. He's involved in the, you know, uh, the day-to-day like chatter with the team as well, whether it's talking about football games in normal times or other things like, you know, he's right there, not as an, not necessarily as the authoritative adult, but as more of a guide, uh, a guiding adult, right? As someone who's, Hey, I'm older, I'm further down the path than you, but still I have empathy and compassion and I'm very relatable to you. And what that does, it fosters an atmosphere where, you know, these ath- these young people, these young adults can feel like they can spread their wings a little bit and try things out because they're not going to be punished for a discretion or a failure versus in other when it all cost environments, right? The anxiety is really high because you got to hit the time. You got to hit the place. You got to do this. If you don't, you're on a big scholarship and blah, 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 blah. And like, there's all this external pressure that a young person might not be ready for. And so what happens is it creates all this anxiety around performance, whether that's during workouts or races. And I've coached athletes who have come from kind of those win at all cost programs. And the first year is like just getting them and getting that anxiety and stripping that away so they can perform and compete and work out at, you know, their best level. And no, it's kind of like the stock market, right? Rate of development and rate of adaptation in an athlete is not linear. It it goes up, it spikes, jumps up, and then it falls back down. It jumps up. Overall, you want a upward trend, but it's by no means, you know, smooth sailing on that upward trend. Yeah, you know, I think that's that's a couple important points that you, you brought up, and I'm glad you brought up Rob because he's a great example um, that I've witnessed from afar. But it, it, it really is getting to this, you know, this, it's almost like how you approach the sport. And 
the way I kind of, you know, think about it is if I'm a, I'm going to use football. If I'm a football coach or a strength coach yelling and screaming at my athlete to finish, you know, his, I don't know, his, his burpees or whatever, his, his, you know, shuttle run tests that they're doing, whatever it is. And I'm yelling and screaming in his face to get it done. He might get it done in that moment. But what you've essentially trained is two things. Is that the athlete should be not enjoy this, should be afraid of it, like sees it as something not to look forward to. And then B, that the reason the athlete is pushing to finish this rep or workout or whatever is because someone is screaming at me and I might be punished or looked down upon or thought as weak if I don't, you know, satisfy, you know, their expectations. And over time, that gets ingrained as a very negative attitude, a very negative, you know, mindset towards any sort of performance endeavor. And I think that's where you see, again, what you were talking about, and I've seen the same thing, is when you come from that win-at-all-cost mindset model, you have these, these mindsets ingrained that create tension, negativity, anxiety, fear at a very basic level mm-hmm. around doing the thing that you once chose to do. And that, as as we've talked about now, instead of looking back on your athletic career, you know, 20 years later and seeing it as a model of like, oh, yeah, I've encountered difficult things. Here's how I managed to, you know, get through them. Your, your, your innate reaction is like, oh, I've encountered difficult things. Like, these really suck. Like, here's, here's a mess of anxiety, fear, confusion that goes with it. Like, I don't know if I want to do this. Yeah, and that speaks to kind of right now, right, in the current moment we're in, where there is a lot of anxiety and fear out there because, you know, people and athletes and coaches are don't have necessarily a clear direction or distraction of, say, the games of the season to be played, right? And so what do we do now? Like, that, I think, is, is the case. Uh, and, you know, my call is to call for everyone to just kind of reorient where they're sitting and say, okay, this isn't going to last forever. We have vaccines on the way, which is awesome uh, that it happened so quickly. And, you know, until that time that they're widely administered comes about, it's still going to be kind of like touch and go, you know, start and false starts, stops here and there. But in the meantime, that doesn't mean people don't stop interacting and people don't start having an opportunity to engage and grow. So whether you are coaching high school or online coach or college or club coach, whatever, whatever your coaching orientation is, the, the aim now is to figure out a way as how to connect on a human level with the people who put you in charge or the people you are in charge of uh, their athletic or running development and how do you connect on a human level it's it's pretty simple it's just um, communication and communication what that means is having a communication strategy 
um, you know, there was a, a mentor coach of mine. He would always have uh, what he called Monday notes. And Monday notes would be, he would just send thing, an email out to his entire team. And he was an AI coach, you know, on Mondays, uh, Monday mornings. And it'd just be notes, you know, ideas, thoughts related to, uh, you know, people on the team could be highlighting if there was a meet that weekend, what happened. Like it was very informal. It wasn't like this super like formal publication. It was just an email and he'd send it, you know, out not only to everyone currently on the team, all alumni and everyone. And so what the brilliance of this was, was I didn't recognize at the time, but now I do. He create, he was able to create a sense of community a sense of belonging through everyone who was on that athletic program who graduated and currently on it uh, because what he was doing was keeping people up to date about just the general ins and outs of what was happening. And you might be like, oh, I don't need to do that now. We have social media. But, you know, the reality is a lot of social media is manicured. A lot of it is filtered. A lot of it is just, you know, the, the, the small, the small, things get missed, right? And so as a coach, what you can do is if you're not in physical communication on a daily basis with your athlete right now, it can just be like, hey, let me just check in with them and give a call or a text or, you know, hey, what's going on? What are you excited about? Or what progress did you have? And I mean, it would just be like things like, hey, you know, this paper, this, you know, student athlete got an A on this paper, or they got an internship here, or, you know, these people got engaged or whatever, right? And what the coach served was uh, as in the Monday notes um, uh, role was a, as a connector of people and of saying, look, we all share this very similar weak bond called, you know, a love of track and field or, you know, a participation on this athletic program at one time or another. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that weak bond and I'm going to through just every Monday, nothing special, week in and week out, year in and year out, what I'm going to do is I'm going to strengthen the bonds. And that's really what a coach coaching at our best does is strengthen bonds of community or strengthen bonds of people uniting us together. We may come together initially for a very similar common love or affinity for something running, basketball, football, tennis, you name it. But the great coaches, like what Rob does, is he strengthens that connection and bond to last for a long, long, long time. And this is the thing. Like I'd be in Rob's office and alumni would just walk in. He had an open door policy, pop in. Guys who ran on the team in the 90s, guys he hadn't seen, you know, no, no heads up. They just walk into the office because that's what Rob is. I mean, Rob was like my officiant for my marriage. He married my wife and I, and I wanted that just because again, he is a human being who understands what it is to create connection around uh, or the opportunity of community around and strengthen bonds so that people feel more safe, right? They feel more at home. They feel more stable. They feel more secure because that connection is the key. And that's what we're missing a lot right now in kind of these fractured Zoom era, COVID times. Um, you know, no matter how powerful social media gets, we have the studies, right? The more you look at a screen in isolation, whether it's, you know, a video, uh, 
you know, social media, whatever, even though it's a placeholder and certain, you know, shallow neurotransmitters uh, like dopamine are firing on your head, it doesn't uh, actually replace or engage like the more uh, deeper neurotransmitters like serotonin, the positive ones that face-to-face human connection does. Cause that's how we're hardwired is to get positivity from that. So no matter what these placeholders are only serving as a bridge to an actual really truthful strengthening of people coming together for when we come back together, you know, uh, with high fives, handshakes and hugs with no limitations. When we come back to big meets and events and things like that and conferences and gatherings, like you want to come out of it stronger and the bonds tighter than, you know, uh, we went into it. And this is what our opportunity in this moment is for coaches. Yeah. How do you create those bonds is something that I think a lot about on the college level, especially. And I am not the world's best communicator. You can ask John for that. This is true. But you know what? I love him to death. So <laughs> communication is my weak point. Uh, it's okay. Same, same goes for Mike Smith. I'm giving, a, giving you a shout out, call out Mike, but I love you to death. Like the irony, right? <laughs> so, yes. So it, it's, 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 it's funny, you know, and any post-collegiate athlete I work with, I always tell them in the first conversation, I'm always like, look, I'm going to let you know, I suck at communicating. Like, but my door is always open in the sense that text me, call me, et cetera. Like that is, that is partially your responsibility in this relationship. I set it up from the beginning and even with my college kids, what I do with them is I have this like little scheduler thing where they can schedule a meeting with me at any time and then I'll go straight to my phone and I'll, I'll do it, you know? Um, Cause it syncs with my calendar and that's my way to make sure that they always have a point when back before COVID times, it was, my door was always open and they knew when I was at the office. So it took care of myself. I added the scheduler because, well, I'm never at the office cause I'm at home more so because of COVID times. But the other thing that like, you know, I've done through the years is every week I send out a weekly email for our, training of the week and a couple of, you know, notes on how things are going, et cetera. And it started off as like, well, I'm just not going to delete our alumni unless they ask me. And then over time, it became like people would ask to stay on the, on the email list, right? So now our email list includes, you know, gosh, eight years of alumni essentially, uh, with very few being asked to be taken off of it. I'm almost surprised to a degree. But all these people get weekly emails on our performance and stuff like that. And it's it's interesting because now, you know, you have this almost like culture and community of people who many don't know each other anymore, right? Because that's how long it's been. But I still get, you know, alumni asking me talking to about like these freshmen and sophomore kids who they have no idea who they are but they're like hey i saw so and so ran this in a time trial you know you guys had last week that's awesome like how are they like what are they doing how are they going to do etc 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 
so it's you know it's a very small thing but it's a it's it's a way to keep that connection and keep that storyline from beginning to end and as you know rob at portland has been there for decades but the more i'm realizing is the story is coherent in my head but i need to realize that every year we get 18 year old kids who have no clue on what happened even a year or two ago so it's my responsibility to craft that coherent storyline and tell stories of those who have come before just so that it feels like hey you're you're part of something larger and part of a tr- tradition that's longer and i think that is if i'm looking at okay how do we navigate this current you know, situation and and as we come out of it is like, how, well, to me, it's how do we integrate that into our greater stories? And how do we get the athletes to realize that, you know, how they handle this advers- adversity and discomfort is going to be a story that gets told years to come, hopefully. Yeah, and that's, you know... The tough part about coaching is you can look at it through a lot of different lenses, right? The most shallow and superficial and basic lens is someone seeking a very transactional service. Give me a training plan to get me better or fitter or faster or what have you, right? Those don't work. You know, I'm, I'm sorry to say like that, that, that service, it may seem like it will work. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But as a coach you know, you have to also remind athletes, like, there is a certain relationship you're signing up. Now, how frequent that bond or that relationship is uh, re-upped or reaffirmed depends on how much you communicate. Are you meeting daily in person? Are you having like, you know, you know, or by bi- monthly like meetings on the phone now? Or is it just emails? Or is it text, right? Like all those little things add up. And Steve's 100% right. Like we don't think about those little things because they come to us second nature as human beings, but to forget now more than ever and to kind of be, you know, lost. And there's, you know, like Steve said offline, like, you know, he's, he and, uh, and myself and, you know, some of our friends like, and colleagues like just are kind of like just floating around feeling blah, like kind of lost. Like, you know, for us, going to events and races and getting ready for things like that was an excuse to give structure to our day-to-day lives right in existence and with that kind of uh ripped away from us for the current moment it's like how do you create that structure right and that's the job of the coach is to figure out okay how do we create structure and organization and point and orient people towards a better tomorrow um and that is where i think having an understanding of training you know does come into play right so like there's two types of training. There's essentially training geared towards external load, right? Which is what time are you hitting? How many miles are you running? Tracking things outside yourself. So some type of arbitrary agreed upon numerical met, uh, measure. But then there's training geared towards internal load. How difficult did you perceive it? What was the effort? Um, rate of perceived exertion, right? And this is where fart, traditional fart lick and other types of training are so valuable because you're just working on the skill of pushing yourself for a certain period of time, for, for a certain length of time, 
um, over certain terrain, right? Hills, track, road, grass, you name it. So now more than ever, like say athletes I'm working with, we've been having dialogues more about the internal loads of training since there is no external race or competition to get ready for. You don't need to be sub four minute fit by this indoor season because there is no indoor season, right? You don't need to be uh, this marathon qualification shape fit by this, uh, by, you know, mid-April for Boston Marathon because it's not happening, you know, right now. So how do you still advance people and progress them through the vehicle of sport, through the vehicle of physical conditioning um, to get them better? And this is where like a lot, you have to reorient and talk more about internal load. And this is great, like Canova and a lot of the coaches in their natural periodization planning speak to internal load as the primary load to focus on in the developmental stages. So you have a long developmental period in front of you that does translate well. I mean, that's all Lydiard's marathon based training was it was internal load it was just run at one quarter of one quarter effort half quarter effort you know three quarters effort whatever it was it you know bowerman did the same thing with his time trials you know okay we're gonna do a 1200 meter time trial at three quarters effort and then we're just going to time it and see what it happens to be but we're not going to tell you a time to run we're just going to see what your effort lined up with just so we have some type of measure of you know uh objective measure so it's not all subjective. And so the pivoting the orientation on the subjective of the person right now, I think is the healthiest thing to do. And you can sell it or you can, uh, you know, um, get buy-in from the athlete by also saying, look, this will translate to the external loading when we start to shift to that period when time does matter. But right now, since we may not know what races are initially down the pipeline and when let's just focus on raising your perceived level of internal loading. And then two, having a lot of dialogues about that, about how people are feeling on workouts or, you know, day to day. And what it will do is it'll get people more in touch to quote unquote, listen to their body. Um, so that when you do go back to normal times and we can worry about like, are people running fast enough qualifying times or whatever, they'll be way, way more, um, prepared to be what, you know, like Vern Gambetta and other people call a robust athlete. They'll have a robust um, capacity uh, and orientation so that they won't be fragile or one-sided um, and have this kind of anxiety that, oh, if I'm not running the pace, it doesn't count type mentality where it's like, no, as long as you're getting the effort or the load, um, the training load, your body will interpret that stress as a uh, disturbance and then it will adapt and repair and advance you, you from that disturbance or that stress to make you more robust so that when you meet it next time, you'll be better equipped. Yeah. I think, you know, I think it's, it's all about how you kind of frame things and what you see things as, and it's, it's reframing what we're trying to do right now. Um, and like, that reframing might be due to the pandemic, but I think it's also, as you pointed out there with Lydiard Canova, it's something that is part of the normalcy when we get back to, you know, somewhat normal. And I think it's something that maybe, maybe this period will help us reframe and realign things back to 
back to knowing when the internal load matters more than the external load. Because I think if we're looking at, if we're zooming out and we're thinking about this, even during a normal season, there is a large swath of the season, a large period of the training where the internal load is dominant and most important. Yes, 100%. Yet, a lot of our training, and mine included, is based on the external load and like prioritizing that because it's easy to measure. And that quick tangent, that easy ease of measurement, right? Art is the question of, are we measuring what matters? <laughs> and sometimes it falls into what I call the uh, amateur bias. And the amateur bias is go with the easy thing that is easy to digest, measure, and understand and make and put on it an undisproportionate amount of import as the thing that matters most. So how many miles a week matters most? How fast a workout is? Did you run 76 seconds per quarter or 74 matters? No, at certain times it does not matter. But as that's common thing is the amateur bias, when you don't have a subtlety and sophistication about training and training loads and adaptation horizons, we tend to gravitate towards those things and give them undue import. They do matter, but not as much as we tend to think. And tangent. <laughs> we love tangents on here. So, that, that's, um, that's a good thing. But no, I think you're right there in the sense that um, we, it's all about figuring out, you know, what actually matters when we're looking at the load. And I think when we're looking at measurement and the load, but I think it's, it's worth, you know, when we come up with our periodization schemes and so forth, we pay a lot of attention to what are we trying to build in this person, like physiologically, like, is it strength? Is it speed? Is it endurance? Is it threshold, etc.? But I think more so we have to look at, or in addition, we have to look at, okay, what are we trying to build psychologically and where do they need to be? And I think this is a great time to like recenter, reframe on, on answering that question on what are you trying, what kind of psychological fitness or, or strategy or stimulus are you trying to um, apply and, and give, you know, um, actually I was talking to, um, Brian Zuliger, who's a professor at Adam State and a mental strength coach. And he was talking about, you know, prioritizing or essentially periodizing like mental strength work in the sense that a lot of times when we think of like sports psychology or mental strength, we think, okay, I need to solve this problem on like, I need to solve this athlete's problem of pre-race anxiety or I need to solve, you know, whatever mental problem it is. But his idea or his mindset is like, no, we need to approach it just like we would um, periodization or just like Lydiard would in training, for example, is we need to set the stage, develop the skills, and then eventually we're going to apply those skills to specific situations, but those are the icing on the cake. And I think that's how, if we zoom back out, why are coaches so important in this moment, especially, but in general, 
we're going to tout our importance. But it's it's largely because we are the people who hopefully engender and develop that wider skill set, not only as like an athlete, not only for the physical, but the mental, psychological, and the well-being uh, as well. And right now we have this great opportunity to do so as hopefully the world turn changes towards from pandemic times into hopefully some sort of semblance of normal, but that semblance of normal is going to be very different from what we entered it in a year ago. And you're hundred percent right on that, Steve. I agree. You know, what came to mind is when you talking about training periodization and mental periodization and framing that is the key thing I think about in organizing or periodizing training is the gains and the training residuals and stability of the gains, right? So we know from like say biomotor quality standpoint, speed, max speed stuff has about a five day plus or minus three day uh, residual. That's why you need to do speed work year round because you know, if you don't do speed work, it's neurological coordination, you get sloppier at it. Now, do you need to do a truckload of speed work? No, you just, they can be like Canova's 10 second hills or, you know, like the max fly 40s or 30s. And it can be three to 10 of those. That's enough, right? It's amazing how little um, you have to do to maintain a load versus advancing it. So just, or, you know, very, very powerful strides, not kind of like just easy strides as it's been common, but you want to do stuff fresh, right? First thing, and then go for your run. And then, you know, rather than go for a 10 mile run and then do it. Same thing with like the understanding of the training residuals and stability of gains of mental fortitude, right? Like sometimes we are very instantly gratified or have an instant gratification bias and we want quick gains and quick gains you know, gains are gains, right? Like, great. But you have to step back and go, how stable is this gain? How stable is this quality, right? So how stable is this mental um, toughness, this grit, uh, this way of thinking? You know, we, like you said, Steve, we want to solve the problem now. Oh, this person gets freaked out on a race day. Okay, well, let's have a hour long talk and Call it good. <laughs> no, give them the skills, right? Put them in scenarios and practice that create that anxiety and then give them the opportunity to fail and then, but also continue to rehearse and retest and fail, rehearse and retest. And so that they get frequency and repetition of that kind of circumstance. So on race day, it's not novel and new and they freak out, right? Um, same situation when it comes to anything in training, ask yourself, how stable the gains are and how long it's going to take. So like for things like in training, right, we know that things are are more like aerobically inclined. So aerobic power, lactate threshold, those kind of like more um, physiological aerobic endurance benchmarks, those take a longer time to develop because it's morphological changes in the anatomy and physiology of the human being. But, the gains on that are very long. So like you cannot do any aerobic work 
for 30 days, complete cessation of it, and not lose anything if you're focusing on all the speed work. You know who did that? Lydiard, essentially, right? In true Lydiard, he went to all speed work six days a week with one quote-unquote aerobic long run to maintain that aerobic uh, capacity that was built up from that six-month marathon block, right? We forget that. We forget you don't have to necessarily do once you've st- established certain qualities that are have stable gains and long residuals. You don't need to do it over and over and again, right? Aerobic power type stuff, that can be done every once every 18 days, which is basically a race uh, when you're in peak season, and you don't have to get nervous about that. So amateurs or people who might not have enough information tend to worry about things that don't matter in periods when they don't matter and don't worry about them enough in periods when they do matter. So now is a really good time to develop qualities, whether they're physical or psychological or both, that are going to have really stable gains in your athletes, not only for a season or a period of racing, but in some ways, hopefully their whole life. Yeah, you know, I I agree 100%. It's about figuring out, you know, I think the key there that you you stated, whether it's in training or psychology or life, it's figuring out uh, the stability of the processes that you're trying to develop. And then how much do you need to maintain that? Because, you know, one of the tenets of my coaching is it's always – it's always easier to maintain something than to build it anew. Yes. <laughs> always. So, like, I go through that process a lot of sitting there being like, okay, from a training standpoint, like, how much do I need to do to maintain this this thing that we spent forever building up? So, there's very few times in the year where we're just doing mileage, for example, because when we're just running along, we're neglecting a lot of stuff that like we spend a lot of time and effort to build up. So, so how do we keep that? You know? And I think that that, that applies as well to the rest of, you know, what we're doing here is that this is a great time for coaches, as you mentioned, as I, as I mentioned to like build a foundation and then figure out, okay, how much do I need to maintain this? Whether we're talking about communication, whether we're talking about psychological skills or resilience, whatever it is, um, what are the things that like we need to build? And you know, from a, a life standpoint, since this is what we've kind of bounced around here, is every week with my college kids, we have a weekly Zoom meeting because, well... You know, I don't have much else to do. So, <laughs> just kidding. I'm extremely busy. But um, we we have a weekly Zoom meeting. And at first, I was like, oh, I'm going to teach them some stuff. And we've done that. And we've had some guest speakers and stuff like that. But it's largely turned into a space for conversation on different different things that people are, you know, uh, struggling with or, you know, want to talk about. And I think, you know, the thing that I've realized is that a lot of times the runs, the easy runs are the place where that conversation occurs. And we've taken that away a little bit because, again, we can't train all the time with everybody and 
everybody in a group and all that stuff. Um, but it's made me realize, okay, like running is more than just, you know, how to train, et cetera. Those easy runs and those conversations before workouts and stuff serve a vital purpose that a lot of these kids don't get elsewhere. Hmm. Yes, you nail it, Steve. Like those little moments are the, you know, building blocks for these stable gains. Like those little moments of interaction where like, yeah, the warm up, the cool down, like the warm up, talking about what's going to happen or what's on the training table or workout plan. And then the cool down, the immediate like uh, post you know, kind of debriefing and rehashing about what just happened and, you know, that shared experience you all went through in the workout or race. And then also just the easy run, just, you know, on a day-to-day, just like, hey, man, what's up? How's it going? You know, this and that, right? Those are vital interactions. Like, we may not be getting as much. And, like, you nailed it. Like, creating that weekly space. Like, this is something, like, say, UP, um, Rob, and uh, Jack Mulvaney, their assistant right now, uh, developed too before this was they, you know, they kind of took it from this Philadelphia 76ers, but did like a Monday meeting where the team would just gather around in a circle and one or two guys would just share something that was pertinent or relevant to them. And it would range from what I'm studying to uh, I haven't told anyone about my mother committed suicide. Like, I mean, you name it. I was just like, just the whole spectrum. But what that did was it created this like expectation, like, okay, on Mondays before we get going for the training week, we're going to just stop and see each other as humans and, uh, and strengthen our bonds of humanity and connection before we go through this next week of school and this next week of training and this next week of, you know, we're coming up to this race. Right. And to me, more than anything, like those little things, uh, that are these building blocks that strengthen our resolve connection and um, ability to see each other more important now than ever before. And not just in COVID times, if you're listening to this, hopefully when we're far, far away from the pandemic. Um, because again, we have this ability or uh, unfortunately we have this distraction or um yeah, it's, I mean, it really is a distraction or temptation, I should say, to become more disconnected in our overly connected society. And so the bonds, the, the connection on your social media platforms or kind of those very trite consumer platforms, they don't satisfy the amount of, you know, deep connection that we're all looking for. And this now more than ever is start putting into practice, practice simple things that you can just reoccurringly do on a regular basis that will allow for an opportunity for the the bonds of connection to be strengthened between not only yourself and your colleagues or your athletes or you know go beyond to your family what have you but taking that time to think about it have a cup of coffee sit down for an hour you know have a glass of wine if you want sit down for an hour and just think just think about that and how to do it and then go do it I mean, it'll be one of those investments in time and effort and energy you made that a year, two years, three years, five years down the road, you'd be like, God, so glad I did that. At least that came out of COVID. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. No, I think, uh, I think that's, that's, uh, that's some great advice. And I think that, you know, it, it really has, 
this whole period, if we're reflecting on what we learned, is it really has emphasized that distinction between the artificial or superficial, I should say, connections that most of us have in this world on social media versus the real moments of connection and belonging that are so needed and, and deeply ingrained in what it's what is it is to be human. And we we can't forget that and we can't think that, oh, I've sent enough group chats, you know, messages and enough tweets and enough whatever kids do, TikTok videos, that I'm I'm connected. And this isn't a only kid problem. Um this is an adult, a human problem of, you know, don't think that you're fulfilling your needs of connection by, you know, uh, sitting on Facebook responding to comments either. And I'm not putting those things down. If you enjoy them, go for it. But, like, they don't fulfill that basic need. And we have to, you know, get creative and figure out ways to make sure that we're we're getting that and tying this together with our theme, which is coaches, coaches, whether we're talking about in sport or in life, like create the ability or the space to do so. And I think that's where it's, you know, we were talking about the small moments at practice, like those are created because we have that space at practice, whether it's engineered or, you know, just there and available to do so. And I think that's so important. And it's, it's, you know, I think of coaching, it's like those moments in the warm-up during workouts. A coach could easily be, and I've seen this happen, like disciplinarian. There's no need to talk while you're doing your warm-ups, like focus on and get it through. Or you could see the bigger picture of life and be like, no, these are moments where kids are sharing things, are, you know, having those small little moments that matter. And I'm reminded of a study that was done in the early 2000s on the Iraq war looking at military bonds and like cohesiveness and how they're created because everyone talks about, you know, bonds are incredibly tight in the military um, within your unit and all that good stuff. And the study found that essentially it was the small moments, the in-between times, the sitting at, you know, at, killing time essentially because you know the (laughs) in wars like that it's it's a lot of killing time a lot of you know space surrounding like very high intense moments of action and it was like those in between moments of shooting the shit while you're waiting for something for hours on end that like created those those bonds and connection so uh, you know, as social media and our phones and other stuff, I'm going to sound old, fill those spaces instead of conversation and connection, I'm a little worried. So, as a coach, I like to think of uh, it's now on us to engineer or create the space uh, for those intimate connections or the, just that space where they can appear um, spontaneously. Yeah, that's, I mean, why like Hell Week works in Navy SEAL training, right? Hell Week is this very difficult, condensed block of time where you're all going through a very similar, um, you know, test of physical and mental uh, fortitude. But the thing that unites you is that that's all you're focused on and all you're doing. 
right? So you get bored in the periods in between the, you know, uh, feats of strength or, you know, disciplinary action or what have you, right? And so because of that, though, the people who come out of that, who understand it's not just about me, but it's about all of us, tend to be the, the quality of the service officers that the Navy SEALs are looking for. And that's the same holds 100% true for like why teams matter, right? The traveling, whether it's traveling by bus or van or plane or what have you to a a meet, uh, the, you know, traveling, you know, to and from practice, like part of like, you know, the Rob's get on the bus strategy, right? Is you have about, depending on where they go to run that day, 10 to like 30 minutes of just downtime to kill between getting on the bus and actually getting to the the workout venue. And no one ever brings their phone too. Like there's, it's kind of like an an implicit, like no phones allowed rule on the bus. So everyone just leaves their phone in the locker room and everyone's just there. Like to, and that's the thing they're focused on for the next two hours is practice. And it's awesome. Um, And because of the convenience we have and the distraction and temptation of like to be able to check your phone whenever, right? Swipe up and swipe here, swipe, swipe, swipe. We tend to just have this, uh, you know, stigma or this worry about being bored or like being um, un, um, unengaged, right? Or just not not having some some type of thing to think about or look at, right? And that's, I think, sometimes where we we lose. And Steve, I'm sure you can also speak this from a psychological psychological level. We lose the op- opportunity to actually through that lack of um, uh, occupation with something, come up with ideas or bonds or jokes or thoughts that, you know, we might otherwise have, had we just had that time to, you know, kind of be like an empty vessel and have like an open space. Yeah. It's that space between, you know, and I think, I think a lot about that because, you know, that's where if you look at how creativity occurs, it generally occurs by doing something really hard and then stepping away from it. Yes. Yeah. And and letting your brain kind of subconsciously mull over and then spit something out and you have these aha moments, right? It's why we have aha moments in the shower a lot of times, right? Because we're doing something mindless or on a walk or on a run. Even some of my best writing, figuring out time is on a run by myself. But if we replace that, that downtime, that space between with, you know, picking our phone up and scrolling, we, we're, we're, we're taking away those moments of potential aha creativity. And I think as a society, we have to come to terms with sometimes boredom is a good thing and that we don't need to always 100% be entertained. And again, I'm going to sound old here, but if you think back to when you were a child, if you're in your 30s like John and I or older, when you were bored, you figured out something to do because like you couldn't just like your mom and dad would just be tired at you at this moment and just tell you to go do something. So 
you picked up an action figure or whatever and created this whole scenario in your head out of like two little GI Joe things or whatever it is, you know, or you created some sort of game to play with yourself. And I think there's, there's, there's something magical in the sense that, that space and boredom push us to like feel with or deal with, deal with that and like find solutions out of that that aren't easy. And the easy solution is to, you know, grab your phone and start scrolling. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody, but think of, I like to, you know, back in the pre COVID times, I always like to think, look around when I'm standing in a line, right. Standing in a line at a, at a grocery grocery store store, or at a movie or whatever, have Mm -hmm. you, or at an airport and just watch how many people like three seconds into it, just standing there, reach down, get their phone and start scrolling, even people in groups, right? And that used to not be an option. You had to fill that space. So I think, you know, you mentioned there, Rob's like get on the bus. I think that's a huge thing is like, how do we create those moments of space where we have to kind of fill it in a way that pushes us towards hopefully moments of conversation or moments of imagination and creativity that, um, you know, we might not get as much in today's modern world. And ultimately like that receding from reality and, you know, going into this fantasy world of social media or whatever, you know, distraction, gaming, whatever you have on your phone, um, you know, what that does is it perverts our most powerful tool, which is imagination, right? Humans, our ability to imagine things is one of our most powerful tools. It's why society has become society, you know, along with like our opposable thumb. But in used well, imagination is called vision, having a vision for birthing something, a reality, a business, you know, a book, if you will, like, you know, what have you into the world that didn't exist before. But the inverse of that, the perverted side is fantasy. Fantasy is like, you know, where actually you aren't creating or making something, you're consumed by something, right? So I'm consumed by this idea that, you know, if I have enough followers on social media, the world's going to love me and I'm going to make all this money and I'll be, you know, accepted by everyone. Or if I post enough pictures of, you know, me, you know, running fast, like someone's going to sign me to a contract or, uh, you know, if I run this time, the whole world's going to notice and care. And then all of a sudden I'll be so, you know, get all these kudos and accolades. That's not real. It's fantasy. It's, it's just a child's fantastical, you know, uh, uh, delusion, right? And so on this imagination spectrum, you know, fantasy, disillusion versus vision, you know, you have to say, where are we? Where, where, how are we using this very powerful cognitive tool we have as humans called imagination? The best of us and the, the, the best side of us uses it for a vision to rally people around a certain concept or idea and to mobilize that group of people to get from the current reality to point to point A to point B, right? Going a man on the moon, right? Or what have you. Those were all visions uh, 
you know, civil rights movement, the Black Lives Matter movement. These are all visions that rallied people around something and created some and is still creating change in a good way. So, you know, as a coach, we also have to lead by example and not um, retreat to our phones, not retreat to distraction in times of marginal inconvenience. And that, you know, when you start coming back together is an important thing to remember is in order to strengthen the bonds of your group or your community or the people you're immediately around, you cannot retreat when you're marginally inconvenienced by it from a time standpoint. Be in the moment, right? And be and seek a opportunity to connect with the people around you in that moment. And maybe you don't want to connect with people around you in that moment. Maybe you are on the bus and you're just commuting to work and you don't want any connection. The phone is then a great tool for that. So is a book, so is a newspaper. (laughs) But when you're surrounded by people you have an ongoing relationship with and want to forge deeper bonds of connection with, don't retreat to those, you know, be there, be ready. I think that is a great place to kind of summarize the importance of coaching in the sense that we are the ones that have the most interactions with young, whether it's high school students, college students, whoever, uh, more so than almost anybody besides their very close friends and, you know, even family. I mean, at the college level, I see the kids more than their family does. Um, And that's an awesome responsibility. And I think one that we sometimes forget and neglect and like, you know, minimize to the fact that, oh, my responsibility is, you know, to get these people to run fast, to, you know, jump far, whatever it is, set PRs. But I think, I think reframing it and reminding ourselves, especially during this, you know, very strange year of 2020 is that our responsibility is much bigger than that. And we have a role, we have the opportunity, I should say, to have a role that is much greater than that. And I would encourage the coaches listening to seize that role and realize that you're not going to be perfect. I am certainly not perfect. I mess up all the time on communication, phone use, whatever have you. Um, And it sucks, but that's part of being a human as well. But as long as we're trying to move forward, set the examples, and even showing like that common humanity and vulnerability of like, hey, this is really freaking difficult to do, um, is such an important message that we can pass down to our athletes. And I hope that, you know, you guys take the time to reflect and, and figure out how to. Yeah, don't forget, coaching is a privilege. Having influence, being a a connector, and having that capacity uh, gifted to you, whether it's through someone paying you to coach them, through an organization paying you to coach them, or whether you're just voluntarily doing it, you know, to interact in a positive way with other people in your area. It's a privilege, and we have to remember with privilege comes responsibility. And you can use that privilege however you want. Everyone has free agency. Steve and I have an agenda and we try to model a way to use the privilege of coaching 
as a way to not only better the coach and the individual, but also more importantly, to kind of better the people that are being immediately impacted and hopefully in some small way, society as a large. Because again, if there's 10 coaches doing this and coaching in this way, you know, a little bit, but not really bit big of an impact will happen. If there's a thousand coaches coaching in this way around the world, a little bit bigger impact will be had. If there's 10,000, if there's a hundred thousand, if there's a million, if there's 2 million, if there's 10 million coaches coaching like this, you're all of a sudden going to see a real big shift in a generation of people who were impacted in a certain way. So you can't forget how your small little actions today can influence future generations and the current generation of people you're working with to hopefully gravitate us towards the better. And that's honestly, I think at the end of the day, all any one person can ask is, can somehow in some way, my engagement and interaction and participation create a society or a place or a community that's a little bit better than I found it. Maybe not wildly better, maybe not, you know, systemically or leaps and bounds better, but just a little bit better. There's a few less weeds, a few less pieces of trash on the ground, so to speak. Um, and, you know, when it's time to pass the baton or pass the torch to the next generation or the next person who's going to fill that role, like, okay, I found it in a better position, better spot than I are here. I'm going to give you something that I found uh, in not quite as great a condition and now is in a little bit better condition for you to enhance even more. And I think that's really, at the end of the day, our mindset and thoughts should be as coaches. Love it. So hopefully you guys uh, took something out of this. Hopefully we maybe inspired you a little bit to reflect and look at your coaching process and look at what you value um, in doing so and the reasons why you're doing it. It's a great time. It's a new year. Hopefully we're on the verge of, uh, you know, getting to some sort of normalcy. Stay vigilant until that time. And until next time, guys, we hope you uh, enjoyed it and we gave you what you want, as John likes to say. Amen, brother.